This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. Stephen Campbell is a retired professor who has traveled around the world sharing insights in cognitive psychology and how to replace the negative messages we give ourselves with constructive and realistic ones, which our brains then rewire themselves with. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Now, you are a professor, or you, mm-hmm. I guess you're once a professor, you're always I'm a professor, I'm retired, right? retired back in 2008, yes. And actually, my, my uh, classes were in uh, computerized, uh, computerized software. And so I, my, my specialty is computers. But when I began teaching 30 years or so ago, my passion is in psychology, specifically cognitive psychology, which really came back in the, out in the, around the 1960s, starting with Albert Ellis and, and Dr. E.P. Seligman and other people. And what we've learned about how the brain works in the last 60 years is astounding. In fact, the scientific community has pretty much agreed that the human brain is the most complex organism in the universe. And as we look at it more, the more astounded of what we can do. But what I like to do is take that physiology and the psychology and ask myself, how can I replace the way I think? Notice they didn't say change. The reason I never use the word change when I'm working in presentations or clients is that the brain hates change. The brain doesn't want you to change. The brain's job is to keep you safe. The brain's job is to keep you risk-free. And change a lot of times involves a risk and something that's different. And the brain says, no, 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 no. Let's not change. Let's not change. So I kind of fooled it. I said, you know what? We're not going to change anything, brain. Let's replace. Let's replace some of the messages you give yourself. So let's begin with this. This is really interesting. Well, before you get started, I want to make sure, and maybe you're going to talk about this. I want to get into self-talk at some point because I see a lot of people saying, I'm a moron. I can't do it. So are you going to address that That's at some exactly point during the show today? That's exactly where we're going. In fact, I'm providing Excellent. the foundation from that, and we'll spend the next 20, 30 minutes talking just about that. Excellent. So, Self-talk. While I'm talking to you, you are talking to yourself, Mark, thousands of times faster. How can your brain do that? Well, when I talk to you, I use words. And when you talk to yourself, you also use words. But when you talk to yourself and we talk to ourselves, mainly we use pictures and feelings. So when I think of Mary, my wife, I don't think of her with words. I think of how I feel about her and how pretty she's become in the 50 years we've been married. So you're talking to yourself far faster than I'm talking to you, but here's the most important point, and I'll keep saying this over and over because it's so important to understand. While you are talking to yourself, while we talk to ourselves, I'll say it slowly, our brain is believing everything we tell it without Mm. question. No arguments. That's scary. And that's wonderful. The scary part is that most of what we say, and this started with Shad Helmstetter's book, What You Say When You Talk to Yourself, back in the 1980s. Most of what we say to ourselves, Mark, is negative crap. Mm -hmm. Around 75 to 80% of what we say to ourselves is negative. Okay, so that's so when we say this is really hard, I just cannot do this, our brain says, oh, Okay, yeah, you're right. 
It really is. And then it looks for ways to make it hard. So that's the scary part. I've heard back in the day, a number of years ago, that the subconscious mind remembers everything you've ever done, said, or thought. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It puts it in the back because if it doesn't use it, it's way in the back there. But we know through advanced hypnosis that I can remember things that I did 10 years ago. But it's way in the back, so that's why we, we forget so many things. And we're having about 85,000 thoughts per day, according to the National Science Foundation. Don't ask me how they counted them, but we have a lot of <laughs> thoughts. And so if I'm 74 years old, I've had a lot of thoughts in my 74 years. So it's all there. It's how do you get it out, okay? Mm. But here's the most important point of this. When we go back to your brain believes what you tell it. The next question we should ask ourselves is, well, what if you are saying is not true? Your brain doesn't even care. There's a wonderful book that was written by Dr. V.S. Ramachandran called Phantoms in the Brain. He's out of UC San Diego. Phantoms refer to phantom limbs that have been amputated. And a patient might go into a doctor's office. He'll say... <laughs> You got to help me. I can't do a thing with my arm. The doctor may say, well, that could be because I cut off that arm six months ago. And the patient will say, well, you didn't tell my brain that. My brain still thinks it's there. My brain still wants to pick things up with it. The most amazing story that I've ever read about this is on chapter 12 of that book. Let me summarize it, but it's an amazing story. Mary Knight walked into the office of Dr. Martin in Manhattan back in 1932. We know this is true because we have the medical records. She was really pregnant, really excited. This is her first baby. She said, will you give me an exam? My husband's been out of work. This is great during the depression. And he said, absolutely. And he gave her an exam and everything was normal and fine, except for a couple of hiccups. Her belly button was still an innie, not an outie, hadn't popped out yet. And he could not find a fetal heartbeat. In fact, she wasn't pregnant at all. She had a condition mm. called pseudosciasis, which is false pregnancy. It doesn't happen too much here in America, but in some third world countries, it does. And as he talked to her, he learned that all of her brothers and sisters had children. Her friends had children. They had been trying to get pregnant for years. And finally, when she missed three periods, she announced to her husband, I'm pregnant. And the hormones kicked in. And she got the big belly and the big breasts and the sway back position, the abdominal fat, the whole thing. She could even feel the baby move down there. In fact, when she came in, she said, my baby is bouncing. I can feel him. And I know I'm going to. And so what does Dr. Martin say? Does he say, well, you've been crazy for the last nine months? He didn't want to say that. So he lied to her. He said, you're right. You're going to deliver today. You'd have time to get to a doctor's office. I'll get time to get to a hospital. I'll deliver you here. So we got a nice and comfortable with warm blankets and pillows. In fact, she fell asleep for a while. And when she woke up, he was right there with her. And he said, I'm so sorry, but we lost the baby. And of course, she was brokenhearted and she went home. She bounced into his office a week later, just as big as before. And she announced, doctor, you forgot to deliver my twin. So the brain believes everything. Now, let me share with you a story that applies to me and then to a student that I once had. Let's go to our self-talk. Our self-talk is what causes our self-images. And we don't have one self-image. We have millions. 
you have a self-image mark for every single thing that you do. You have a self-image for how you see yourself as a radio host, as a dancer, as an athlete, as a card player, as a cook. You have a self-image for every meal that you cook. So we have all these thousands of self-images, and they're learned. You weren't born with them. Now, you're born with certain natural dispositions. I was born a natural teacher. I've always been a teacher. I love teaching. But I had to learn how to teach, okay? But our self-images are learned. And you know what they're based on? They're based on your self-talk. Your self-images are based on what you are saying to yourself about yourself. Now, here's the exciting part that we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. You can replace what you're saying to yourself. So let me give an example. For the first 42 years of my life, my brain and I hated each other. I thought I was stupid, dumb, non-athletic, bald, uh, just not really good for anything. And I really believe that. And of course, my brain agrees with me because it agrees with everything. And I was stupid in math. I saw numbers. I would absolutely freak out. But then in the 70s, even before Apple, I discovered computers. And I find it had a natural tendency, and I would take them apart and put them back together, and this is really fun. And eventually, I went back to school and got my graduate degree in computer science. And I began teaching computer courses. And one day, the dean came to my office. He said, one of our math professors just quit, so you are our new math professor. (gasps) (laughs) Wait a minute. I I can't do numbers. He said, you want a job? Learn. There's the book. Next semester. Well, I needed the job, so I ran down to the Roner Park Library, and I picked up all the books I could on how the brain learns. That's how this whole thing started back in the 70s. And I began teaching my math class based on how the brain learns. And students began saying, oh, oh my gosh, you're such a wonderful math teacher. And then the, the, the dean said, all the students saying, I will only take math if Mr. Campbell my professor. And Mark, what I did was I began listening to those students rather than what I've been telling myself for 42 years. And I began saying, wait a minute. If I'm so smart with computers, I got to be smart with math. And what did my brain say? It said, oh, okay. Is it true? I don't care. All I care is what you tell me. But here's what happened. The more I taught it, the better I got. And the more fun it was. And I said, I can really do this. And they ended up writing two college textbooks. And what do you think? Computer software and math. Okay. Now, let's apply this to the other side. I taught math at USF, University of San Francisco. And one day a student came to my office. She was very, very shy. sat down. She said, Mr. Campbell, I'm really glad you're my professor. I said, why is that, Sue? Because I've never gotten above the C in a math test. So I'm a C student. So I just want to warn you, don't worry when I get my Cs because that's just who I am. I said, well, I used to be that way, so I'll work with you. So I did, and she got an A in the first midterm. And I gave her the test, and she absolutely freaked out, Mark. She said, (gasps) and then she said, oh, Mr. Campbell, this is a mistake. What do you mean, Sue? She said, I have never gotten above a C in a math test. You must have made a mistake. And I said, I didn't, Sue. This is a genuine A. So then she looked at it longer, and I'll never forget this, Mark. She looked at it longer, and then a big smile creased over her face, and she said, 
do you know what this means? And of course, now I'm getting excited. So I sit down next to her. I said, of course I do, Sue. Tell me, what does this mean? This means, Mr. Campbell, that when I flunk the next test, I can still maintain my C. <laughs> I said, oh my glory. Sue, just get an A on every test. She said, Oh, I can't. Why? Because I'm a C student. And that's exactly what happened. She flunked the next test. She got a C in the course. So I sat down with her with, with her A here. And I said, Sue, answer me this. What would have happened if you had flunked this first test? Do you know what she said? Without a moment's hesitation, what do you think she said? Does your to-do list have you overwhelmed? When you join my digital productivity coaching program, you'll learn how to get and stay focused, become untangled from the chaos of your to-do list, experience less overwhelm, and have time to do what you really want to do. Sign up today by clicking the coaching tab at mrproductivity.com. I'm going to guess that she will do whatever it takes to get, get the C. A on the next test. No, she said, I'll get an A on the next test to maintain my C. I got to. Ah, if I don't get an A on the you. next test, I won't get my C. And I said, just get a C on every test. Just get an A on every test. She said, I can't. Why? Because I'm a C student. I've always been this way. This is the way I look. I'm bald. This is how I was raised. This is what I've done. This is where I failed. This is where I've succeeded. And our brain is saying, okay, okay, okay. Let me ask you a question, Mark. Do you know when your old life ended? It ended one second ago. One second ago. Your old life just ended one second ago. So when did your new life begin? It began one second ago. Now, do the math, 60 seconds per minute, 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours per day. In one 24-hour period, you have 86,400 new opportunities for new life every single day. And if you live to be 90, that number goes up to 2,883,201. All we have to do is decide make the choice to take them. And our brain says, okay. Yeah. I just want to interject here because there's a guy I found named Grant Cardone. He's the founder of the 10X movement. And I once heard him say in a training, he goes, a lot of people say, I can't make a lot of money. He goes, here's the truth. If you want to make a million dollars a year, somebody's already done it. So you can do it. If you want to make a million dollars a month, Somebody's already done it. You want to make a million dollars a week? Somebody's already done it. You want to make a million dollars a day? Someone's already done it. You want to make a million dollars an hour? Someone's already done it. You want to make a million dollars a minute? Someone's already done it. His point was, if one person has already done it, you can do it too. And I grabbed onto that truth and I'm like, all right. Wow. That's one would tell my brain that, you know, my goal right now is to have a net worth of over a hundred million dollars. I'm nowhere yeah. close to it, but I'm yeah. telling my brain every day. Yeah. I have a net worth of over $100 million. Yeah, yeah. And what's so exciting is that your brain finds a way. Mm. Let me share with you another story that's amazing. Back in 1980. I love this conversation, by the way. I love you sharing oh, the stories. They are stay drill the point home. Thank you, Cliff. Cliff Young is one of my heroes. Back in 1986, he entered the first Australian marathon, which went from Sydney to Melbourne, 885 kilometers, 545 miles. 
And 150 of the top runners in the world flew to Australia to run in this marathon. And Cliff Young showed up in farmer's galoshes and muck boots. And all the re- all the reporters ganged up on Cliff. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And he said, well, I spent my life in the outback chasing my 2,000 head of sheep on my 2,000 acre farm. I mean, this is a five-day race. I run sheep for three. I thought this would really be fun. That's the word he used. Okay. So he won the race. I mean, he ran the race. And of course, as I gave you the hint, he won it. But listen to this, Mark. He beat them all by a day and a half. Wow. How did he do that? (laughs) Well, when you run a race like this, you run for 18 hours and you sleep for six. Mm -hmm. Cliff didn't know that. He didn't know you're supposed to sleep. Oh. (laughs) So while all the other racers were sleeping, he just kept on running. Okay. Now, as I tell my audiences, that's really inspirational. Mark, I'm not here this morning to inspire you because you know, and I know that inspiration lasts for maybe three days. Mm-hmm. And then we go back to our old ways. I'm here to help you change the way you think. So let's talk about what happened the next year. The next year had the same race. Cliff Young showed up, couldn't finish it because he hurt himself. Eight runners beat his record. And the year after that, the year after that, the year after that, they asked the runners, how'd you do it? How'd you run without sleeping? And they said, easy. We looked at Cliff Young. Mm. Do you remember Mark? And I can't remember his name, but up to, I think it was 1948 or 49, the world said that the four-minute mile was impossible to run. Remember that? Yep. Yep. And then maybe it was in 54 that a gentleman ran it. Now, if you're a high school track runner, if you don't run the four-minute mile, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're saying about $100 million a month. I love what um, Ford said. He said, whether you say you can or cannot, you're usually right. Yeah. So let's go back to self-images because the self-image part is such an exciting thing and I get so excited about it. First of all, let's talk about how much we can learn and grow and change. Let's let's do that. Let's get into the physiology of the brain here. Um, and I'll use my daughter one of my daughters, an example, Sarah, uh, was raised in Roner Park. Roner Park is a little town about 60 miles north of San Francisco. And um, Mary said to me, we got to teach Sarah about the city. Mary's an educator. She was an elementary school principal. So I read her a book. Here's how the brain learns physiologically. I read her a book. The brain recorded that book as a neural cluster, a little cluster of neurons right under the prefrontal cortex, right under here. I read her another book. The brain recorded that. I, we took her to some friends in San Francisco, Oakland, and so you got all of these clusters all around her brain, fire engines, parking lots, all the things having to do with the city. Now, so she got all this stuff during the day. When she went to sleep that night, here's what her brain does. Here's what your brain does. Her brain says, oh, wonderful. Now leave me alone for the next eight hours because now what I need to do is while you're asleep, I'm going to make sense of all the stuff that you gave me during the day. Because during the day, as I said, 85,000 thoughts, 
I couldn't have time to do that. What I'm feeling, thinking, feeling. So now that you're asleep, I can make sense. So here's what it does. It looks at all the stuff that you learn and it tries to find relationships. It tries to find similarities. And if it does, it connects them together. So over the night, it's connecting all of this stuff together with neurons, axon, dendrites, synaptoclasts, etc. Okay. Now, over time, it creates a pattern of a city. And now Sarah will never forget what a city is. It's got people, lights, cars, etc. Now, Mark, how many patterns can the human brain carry? Well, let me answer that question for you by looking at the connections. The number of patterns are based on the connections. The number of connections are based on the number of brain cells that you have. The latest study I've seen is 83 billion. Okay, each of those 83 billion cells are connected to an average of 10,000 other cells. Now, that's not a multiple mark. That's a power. Mm. So the number of connections which the human brain can carry is 83 billion times 83 billion 10,000 times. Wow. Dr. Ramachandran wrote in Famson the Rain on page eight that neuromathicians have calculated that the number of connections, he calls them something else, but I call them connections, basically exceeds the number of elementary particles in the universe. In other words, there's really no limit, but there is, Mark, there is a limit. And limit is this. The primary element that's holding us back from learning and growing and changing is what we say to ourselves. Mm -hmm. The primary element, Mark, that holds us back is not how we were raised. It's not COVID. It's not isolation. It's not the pandemic. It's what we say about how we were raised and what we say of the pandemic. And we can replace what we're saying. Now, there's the foundation. You ready for the real exciting stuff? Let's mm -hmm. get into feelings. Let's talk about feelings. And I want to look at the work of Dr. Albert Ellis, who wrote A Guide to Rational Living back in 1961. He turned psychology on his ear. Here's what he suggested and now been validated by decades of research all over the world. Okay. That our feelings, and I'm going to talk about our feelings about ourselves. That's my goal. That's my focus today. Our feelings about ourselves do not come from how we were raised or what we look like. They come from our beliefs about how we were raised and our beliefs about what we look like. Now, people say to me, well, I'm not really sure what I believe. And I say very gently to them, there's a wonderful handle. You know what the handle is? Listen to yourself talk. Hmm. If you want to know what you're believing, listen to what you're saying to yourself about yourself. And that is where your feelings about yourself are coming from. Now, why is that exciting? Because you can replace those beliefs. Another story. Mary and I have been married for 50 years and 40 years, 10 years ago, I was teaching at a particular college. She called me at work and she never does that. She never does that. Have you ever, and you, have you ever, um, where's my phone? Oh, okay. Have you ever, have you ever picked up your phone? You know, something's wrong. As soon as you get it to your ear, you just know some mm -hmm. kind of electricity that there's something wrong. 
and you get my wife near a phone and she talks. And this time she was really quiet. I put the phone to my ear and she just didn't say anything. Because the receptionist said, your wife's on the phone. So I knew it was Mary. And finally I said, hi, what's going on? I have cancer. And I need you home. And I need the girls home. And I need the husband's home. And I need everybody home. So we all went home to our house. We have two daughters, both married and children. And we spent the day together replanning our lives. Uh, Mary had breast cancer. It would be involved um, mastectomy, corrective surgery, uh, 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 radiology, chemotherapy, all the things, losing your hair, the whole thing, being out of work for a year. And so we we looked at what are we going to do with this? We're going to do this. And we talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. Finally, the girls went home. Mary and I talked into the evening. And what we did was this. We looked at the work of Dr. E.P. Seligman, who wrote Learned Optimism, who is still out there. He has a wonderful website called Positive Psychology, Seligman, S-E-L-I-G-M-A-N-N, Dr. Seligman, of the University of Pennsylvania, wrote Learned Optimism. Here's what he discovered about optimists who are, who are optimists, what they do with when really, 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 really bad stuff happens, like the death in a family like COVID, like bankruptcy. What do you do with that? So here's what we did with it. Hey, you listening to the Mark Stuchowski podcast. Thank you so much for doing so. I really appreciate it. But are you a Mark Stuchowski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter, and you can sign up right now by going to mrproductivity.com. M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com. We said, okay, number one, and here's this is from Sullivan, we're going to isolate it. What does that mean? We're saying, here's the cancer with all the stuff that it involves, but, but, but it's not the only thing in our lives. There's other things in our life that are just as real. Like, <laughs> we live in Sonoma County. I'm looking at the hills above my house. We've been married for 40 years. Our daughters are married to men who love them even more than we do, which we never thought could ever be possible. So we said, we made a decision, cognitive psychology, we are not going to let this cancer be an umbrella over the rest of our lives. Was it an easy decision? Of course not. But here's another whole area that I talk about. It's called neuroplasticity. When you lock onto a new decision, your brain rewires itself. And that new decision over time, takes some time, becomes a part of the way you think, becomes your mindset, and over time it becomes who you are. So when we made that first decision, it was really hard. But the more we made that decision, the easier it got till it became just a part of our relationship. Okay? So number two, ice, uh, optimists isolate it. Number two, they temporalize it. What does that mean? They say life is a moving picture. I can guarantee you, Mark, that tomorrow's is going to be different from today. That's a guarantee. That's the way life is. That's the dynamic of life is that life is always changing. And so we locked on to, okay, we're going to lock on to Mary being cancer-free a year from now. Let me share with you another story of how this works. 
When I was a little boy, my dad taught me how to ride a bicycle. He took me out to this training, to this road, and he took the training was off. He said, now, son, before I give you a little shove, you see that rock in the road about 50 feet? Yes, daddy. Don't run into that rock. And you already know what happened, Mark. Mm-hmm. I got down on the bike, eyes locked onto the rock, so I would not run into it. Of course, bam, right into the rock. That's the way your brain works. That's what we locked onto. Mary will be cancer-free in a year. Did we know that? Of course we didn't. Stuff happens. But that's what we're going to lock onto, just like you're locking onto $100 million a year, a month, a week, a day, an hour. Okay, so that's what and then what's so exciting is that the brain you do that and the brain looks for ways for it to come true. And you've already experienced that. Okay, so that's what we did. Okay, so we temporalize. We say a year from now, Mary's going to be cancer free. Number three, optimists say, I always have a choice in the way I think. Mm -hmm. I always have a choice. So let me tell you what happened. So a year later, she was cancer free. And the year after that, the year after that, the year after that. And then she called me in the same way around the same time. But this time it was different. This time, hi, hi. What's going on? She said, I just walked out of the doctor's office. They found something. (gasps) How are you doing? You know what, Steve? I'm doing all right. I made it through last time. I can make it through this time. What happened, Mark? Not the cancer. It's what she said about the cancer. And we have those kind of decisions that we can make. 2018 was an amazing year for me. I discovered I had cancer. And then I discovered around the same time I had cataracts, diabetes. And then at the end of the year, I discovered I had advanced heart disease. My mitral valve was flipping all over the place. So for the cancer, they took away a lot of my scalp and I'm cancer free. For the diabetes, I've changed my lifestyle and I've lost 30 pounds. For the for the cataracts, they replaced um, the lenses up here with corrective lenses. And now I don't need glasses anymore. I've got these, but I very seldom wore them. And then last year I had open heart surgery and my heart is as good as near. But the point I want to make is this. My feelings didn't come from the cancer or the cataracts. Mm -hmm. You know where they came from, Mark? They came from my self-talk. They came from what I was saying about the cancer and the cataract. And here's the exciting part. I locked on to those messages that I was giving myself. My brain rewired itself to the point where it became a part of who I am. Let me share with you another story. I wrote a wonderful book called um, Making Your Mind Your Mentor. That was the original title. My publisher said nobody knows what a mentor is, so I changed it to Making Your Mind Magnificent. It sort of goes into all of this, but it leads to what I called an affirmation. So let me share with you what an affirmation really is. It's not new age. It's not weird. It's simply a statement that you make in a, in a special way about what you want to do. So let me give you an example. My father died when he was very young. He was 62. And Mary said to me as we drove away from the memorial service, if you die early, I'll kill you. Because I don't want to be a widow for 40 years. And I said, oh, okay. Now, it's about 40 pounds more than I weigh now. So I said, okay. 
I knew it was this way. So I'd get up and run and swim, and I'd lose maybe two or three pounds a week, gain it all back on the weekend. I did that for 20 years. Couldn't lose the weight. Here's the reason, Mark. I would look myself in the mirror, and I would say, you are a 240-pound man who's got to lose 40 pounds. When I said, you are a 240-pound man, what did my brain say? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But I didn't hear this part, but then it said, my job is to keep you at 240 pounds because that's how you see Mm. yourself. And my brain had rewired itself, so I was 240 pounds. Well, after 20 years of this, I said, well, this sucks. So I began studying all the stuff that you can see behind psychology everywhere. And I realized I was giving myself the wrong message. So I created an affirmation, something like... um, you look so great at 200 pounds and you're so thin and you're so in shape and wow. And of course, when I first said that, my brain freaked out. I said, excuse me, <laughs> uh, excuse me, <laughs> hello, reality check here. <laughs> look at the scale, look at the mirror. You don't weigh 240, you, weigh, you don't weigh 200, you weigh 240. And that's when I said to my brain, and here's another principle. No, I'm the boss. And I say I weigh 200 pounds. My brain sort of set up after a couple of days and said, oh, okay, I believe you. But now we've got a problem. Like there's a 40-part difference between what you're saying and what you are. We need to take care of that problem. Now, the first thing I want you to do, Steve, is to give up. That's the first thing the brain wants to do. Just give up. Steve, you're trying to lose this weight for 20 years. Just give up. You never will. And that said, I'm the boss. And I'm locking on that affirmation. And every single time I sit down for a meal, I'm eating like a 200-pound person, even the way I weigh 240. The point is, the more I did this, the easier it got because the brain was rewiring itself. So eventually, mm-hmm. I lost the weight. Now, here's the point I want to make, and back to self-images. There is still a self-image in my brain of a 240-pound person, Mark. It's still there. How do I know? Because I've never had lobotomy. Okay? So it's in there somewhere. And I could bring it forward anytime I wanted to. As you said at the beginning, we remember everything. I could bring that forward anytime. But every single time I choose to eat like a 200-pound person, that 240-pound image goes farther, farther, farther back. Now, now I, 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 we got to stop here because I, I got to share something with the audience. Because yeah. you were already supposed to be on the show. And we had some technical difficulties. Yeah. And you emailed me this morning. Actually, you're listening just on September 8th. We did it yesterday. And you said, oh, I don't think it's going to work. And I'm so glad we got the technical uh, issues taken care of because you have spoken for like 30 minutes straight. I, I hardly ever talk, which is very rare on my show because I like to talk on my show, but I didn't want to interrupt you. But you gave so much information on the show today. I yeah. just want to thank you for being here today oh, because this is thank an episode that people are going to listen to several times because you gave us a bunch of resources, a bunch of homework to do, and I don't want people to miss that. So, I mean, I know you're retired. But are yeah. you active on a website yeah. or social media yeah. or something? I have a website. My website is stephenrcampbell.com. But mainly I have a wonderful book on Amazon. And the book is Making Your Mind Magnificent. And that's available either on Kindle or on audio or on Audible or on Amazon. 
and people absolutely love it. They buy it for their kids, for themselves, and it's a really, really good book. Finally, um, for many years, I did an all-day seminar down in Silicon Valley here in the Bay Area. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, said, Daddy, we got to get this online. So she had a professional videographer, if videography it, and now it's available on Teachable. So that is stephenrcampbell.teachable.com, and they can do that. Mainly, though, if people want to contact me, because this is where I love it, is my email. And my email is Stephen C, S-T-E-V-E-N-C, at sbcglobal.net. Now, the cost of that all-day seminar is $297, but during COVID, I reduced it down to $49. And if people would like to get the code for that, they can email me and I will send it to them. And that also includes conversations over the phone with me because I find that people just need to talk to somebody and I'm a really mm -hmm. good listener. Okay. So they can uh, contact me at Stephen C S T E V E N C at sbcglobal.net. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you for being on the show today because I learned a lot and I thank really you. appreciate your time today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time and attention for listening to this episode of the Mark Stucheski podcast. Hey, are you a Mark Stucheski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter where I will send you value multiple times a week. And I promise you, every time I send an email out to my insiders, it always has value. So if you want to sign up absolutely free, just head on over to mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com.